Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 2nd, 2022. You'd think the FDA regulatory space would coast into the Labor Day holiday weekend, but we wound up with a number of interesting and newsworthy events this week. First up is the emergency use authorization of a new COVID-19 booster shot, which was which was quickly recommended for use by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Sarah, you were one of the reporters on this story. Take us through what happened. So, you know, FDA this week cleared the um, bivalent um, boosters that are updated to include the prototype vaccine, which targets the original Wuhan strain of the virus, and then the kind of currently dominant variant in the U.S., BA4-5. And so CDC weighed in on the authorizations yesterday and voted 13 to 1 um, to kind of greenlight them. It's for, for Pfizer. Um, the booster shot is for the 12 and up population and the Moderna, it's just adults 18 and up. Um, one thing that um, you know, I think is important to, you know, highlight is it's one of those 13 to 1 votes that like, you know, looks very lopsided and clear cut. But if you probably listen to the um, conversation all day, I don't think it was quite a, you know, I think the sentiment was a little bit different (laughs) than what the vote maybe lets on. Um, And I think that's a lot to do with sort of the amount of data people have to evaluate these. And I think most people feel like, you know, the data is not really ideal in terms of kind of knowing w- what is the added benefit from boosting with these vaccines versus say boosting again with the older vaccine or you know maybe like certain populations do they really need a booster at this point and so forth um and you know some i think most people aren't too concerned about the safety profile but i think some people did have questions for younger folks, again, in terms of what is the benefit here and then what is the risk if you're somebody who might be at high risk of myocarditis, if you get, you know, shots too close together, a shot too close to an infection and so forth. So um, even though it was unanimous, I think, you know, it wasn't like a quite as, you know, unanimous in the way the CDC director's statement came out afterwards might make it seem. And it was sort of interesting, like the person who voted no, Dr. Sanchez, voted no, and he was particularly concerned about the lack of clinical data and then said, but, you know, I'm in that sort of like, um, I don't, he, I don't think he ever said his age, but, you know, he's, I guess, probably at least like in his maybe 60s or 70s or something like that, you know, kind of saying like, I'm in that really kind of older high risk population and I'm still going to go out and get this, even though I voted no, which is right. And then you had someone else who voted yes and then kind of commented after the vote and seemed to suggest in many cases, she might not recommend this for patients or for people, you know, in the, you know, quote unquote, real world, however you want to describe it. So there's like certain interesting dynamics that play out here that I think, you know, we've seen in boost other booster authorizations and so forth in the U.S. in terms of the data not always being, you know, where many people would want it to be. And then the you know, how that gets communicated to the public is interesting. And then how many people end up feeling like they need or should get the boosters is interesting. Certainly the initial boosters haven't had as much uptake as the U.S. um, would like. 
And there, there's actually some interesting data at ASIP kind of about people's perceptions around need for boosters and why they hadn't gotten boosters and so forth. Um, another thing I think that's really important to highlight is the agency, I think both CDC and FDA are sort of trying to do like a refresh, if you will, with this booster authorization. So, you know, prior to this, we've been counting, okay, like, you know, you're eligible for your, you know, your first booster, your second booster, your, you know, your third booster, whatever, depending on, you know, um, your health status and so forth and your age. And now they're basically like, almost like resetting the clock or something like that. They're basically saying, okay, no longer think about all of that. Just think about the timing of when you got your last COVID shot, whether it was you finished your primary vaccine series or a booster and get another shot two months or more from that. So they're kind of trying to like almost make everyone, obviously this doesn't apply if you're under 12, but kind of make everyone in the country, I guess, sort of on the same booster schedule and kind of to create this simplicity and time frame where everyone in theory should sort of be eligible to get one of these shots in the fall and you don't have to go back and worry, well, wait, was I supposed to get like my second or third of that other booster first before I get this? Um, so that was pretty, that's, you know, could be kind of significant in seeing how that push gets communicated. And again, does that lead to more booster uptake um, with the streamlining of the recommendations there? Yeah, was, I certainly I, think it's a, um, I think it could, and they, they seem to be sort of kind of uh, um, very deliberately making this transition to a uh, an idea where perhaps you're getting an annual shot, just like you're supposed to for uh, for flu. And I'm also amused by uh, not only Professor Sanchez saying that, you know, this is something I want, even if I'm not saying yes, but uh, you know, the day before, uh, FDA Commissioner uh, uh, Rob Caleb was saying he's going to be first in line for the, uh, um, for the booster shot. So there's a lot of uh, personal discussion of sort of kind of uh, of need for this uh, from the uh, um, from the people making the decisions in the uh, in the past few days. So it's uh, um, not the sort of usually uh, um, uh, in you know the broader sort of kind of public health uh, message you uh, that I'm used to, to hearing. Although obviously you want the people that are uh, um, making the decisions to uh, um, to feel like they have uh, have enough confidence in it to do it themselves. But it's uh, not so much like that. I need this, but sort of kind of what the that America needs this is sort of kind of where uh, where I expect the messaging to be. But it's more like uh, an I need this message on the uh, um, on this particular booster. Yeah, the other thing I also wanted to emphasize about like the CDC sort of um, or the ASEP vote and so forth is I'd have to think a little bit more about this in context of like other ASEP decisions around COVID vaccines, but it felt maybe to me to a certain extent that they were sort of locked into kind of having to recommend this more than they were in other situations because um, I didn't really appreciate this until it was emphasized at the meeting, but what when FDA authorized the bivalent boosters for the populations they authorized it, they also pulled the authorization for the prototype vaccines for mm. use as boosters in that population. So, <laughs> If ASIP had voted down this booster yesterday, right, there would be no booster available for anyone 12 and up, which, you know, if you had, if you're, if the, the data said that, well, everybody in the U.S. who was supposed to already get one of those old boosters had gotten it, 
might not be a big deal, right? Like if you said, okay, we've already boosted all these people, you know, one or two times or whatever, and we just don't think they need another booster right now, or and we don't think this bivalent, you know, booster is necessary, fine. But when we have data that shows, you know, I think it's still the majority of the population hasn't gotten boosters, um, you you know, you you'd probably not want a situation where there was nothing available for them now. So by pulling the older booster option, you know, I, I wonder how much, you know, ASIP was in a bind. And one of the other things that came up, you know, at at ASIP was they really didn't like that two month time frame as sort of the minimum amount of time you could wait after, you know, another COVID shot to get this booster. People felt like that was too soon, probably both on a potential safety front and on an efficacy front to get the most benefit out of it. But, um, you know, based on the comments CDC provided ASIP, again, they don't really have any ability to tinker with that. I guess in sort of their clinical consideration language they put out, they can maybe, I guess, like sort of offer some additional guidance and verbiage <laughs> to help providers and, you know, think about how to counsel patients and so forth. But, you know, it's not like they could say, okay, you know, we like what FDA did, but, you know, get it, you know, uh, at a different time point. Or, <laughs> so um, that's kind of interesting to me too, is, you know, they, they what, what leverage they really had here, you know, they can really only, um, particularly with EUAs, they're, they can really only kind of restrict FDA, it seems like. Not sorry, not restrict FDA. They can sort of take what FDA has done and maybe narrow it in the sense of like FDA cleared it f- for 12 and over. Maybe they could have said, oh, we think only, you know, 55 and over should do it, but they couldn't have really tinkered with, if FDA said something like the two-month thing, they couldn't, you know, make it longer than two months or so forth. That's a that's a great point, Sarah. I mean, there's there's always this sort of tension between sort of kind of this uh, you know, this sort of this two key uh, you know access uh, system where sort of both FDA and CDC have to agree on uh, a vaccine for it to sort of kind of get a wide uh, um, rollout. And uh, the way that FDA is uh, approaching this uh, uh, booster, they're not sort of giving uh, uh, CDC much of an option uh, um, either just to say uh, no boosters or uh, or this booster. Uh, you know, they're uh, um, you know, as as you as you noted, you know there was a lot more um, concern about this really earlier booster uh, um, campaigns from ASIP, and not so much uh, this time around. And that's that's you know sort of the same pattern's been true with uh, um, Verpac, the uh, the FDA advisory committee. They sort of kind of had a uh, you know a lot of no votes on the uh, the you know initial Pfizer Pfizer authorization for the. Uh, the first mra uh, mrna vaccine and uh, you know by the end of uh, um you know they were, were kind of more broadly supportive of uh, um the vaccines that they were being uh, um being asked to weigh in on so uh, um you know i guess it's sort of kind of just for sort of kind of human nature perhaps we're kind of that uh, you, know, you get more familiar with something so you're sort of kind of less uh, um less concerned even if the the actual uh, issues don't uh, um don't change but uh, um you know there may be some uh, um Sort of kind of bureaucratic brinksmanship more than sort of kind of scientific uh, um, elements involved in there, as you say. Right. I mean, I think one reason why you know people are more comfortable in some ways with these boosters is we've learned from the previous booster campaigns, even though most of that has been sort of you know 
real world data and not always, you know, the kind of data people who review FDA <laughs> applications or sit on ASIP um, prefer the most. But they, there is this sense now that people who've gotten boosted have gotten a benefit, you know, from it. And we've learned more about the waning protection of these vaccines against, you know, against um, infection, certainly. And, um, you know, to a lesser extent against severe outcomes. So I think it's the value of the booster shots in general or the need for them, given the sort of duration of effectiveness of these mRNA vaccines has been more clearly characterized since we were first debating whether people needed a booster. Um, the questions here were just more about, okay, is it okay to make these tweaks to the original vaccine and not have tested this precise formulation in humans yet. And then again, again, what is the meaningfulness of the, you know, what the expected, you know, of the immunogenicity response people are having to this version or animals are having to this version <laughs> versus, you know, the response to the original vaccine and what kind of added benefit does that provide? And some of that to me is more about not about it's not about sort of whether you people think about whether you, you know, authorize it or not, or, you know, ASIP signs off on it or not. It's about kind of then, well, how do we communicate it that to the public? Right. I mean, um, you know, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago where Ashish Jha at the White House was like very complimentary <laughs> of these boosters and kind of making it seem like they were going to be some big game changer. And most of the scientists I've talked to say like, you know, yes, you probably want to get this, you know, it'll probably be helpful, but we really don't know the extent it will be that helpful. And nobody really thinks it's going to be some big game changer compared to the prototype vaccine based on the immunogenicity data we've seen so far. I mean, some people, a lot of people have characterized the, if you looked at, we're looking at a BA1 <laughs> um, updated vaccine, which is not what FDA approved, but it's the closest thing we have in terms of clinical data that the immunogenicity, you know, the antibody titer increase seen in that versus the prototype strain is, you know, st was statistically significant, but, you know, there are lots of questions about whether that will turn out to be clinically meaningful in any way. So I think when you do something like that, you can, you have to be careful not to like oversell something to the public too, because then you give it to people and they still, you know, maybe they it doesn't prevent infection very well, you know, but they're protected from severe disease. But then people, you know, sometimes people can lose trust in a vaccine if you say, you know, if they think it was supposed to prevent them from infection and it doesn't. So that's why I think it's important just to be really clear about that so people know how to behave and, you know, have their expectations clear about what benefit risk calculus they're making. Yeah, that's a, it's a, uh, um, a an interesting uh, um, concern. I mean, there is this whole you know, issue I think where sort of kind of a physician can themselves create a you know halo effect from sort of positive placebo approach. You know, where you're wearing the gleaming white coat and you're saying, you know, take this; it's a powerful medicine. You know, maybe what you should be saying is, you know, a thousand person study, so you know, you know, sixty two percent efficacy or whatever. Um, it's not going to convince the patient to either take the medicine or sort of kind of you know create uh, whatever sort of kind of positive vibes you want that might might make them feel better. Uh, Anyway, and so uh, you know, if uh, um, you have the White House, uh, you know, saying perhaps some some somewhat exaggerated things about uh, the vaccine, you know, I don't think it's sort of kind of their 
being you know hucksters i guess you could you could characterize it that way if you wanted but they're just trying to sort of kind of to uh, um you know put a uh, um you know a a best uh, a best foot forward on it and uh, you know it's a it's a it's a hard call between sort of being uh, absolutely accurate and actually sort of trying to sort of kind of uh, you know encourage people to do what you think is the right uh, right thing sure one one thing i wanted to get back to sarah that you mentioned was the um the the there there was a comment in the story on the ACIP meeting about how uh, somebody said it you know we're not in a pandemic with ninety thousand cases a day it would have been better if we had human data I mean you, you've you've listened to the ACIP I think more than I have I mean are they is this kind of are, are they changing kind of their thinking about this you know kind of gradually away from the oh my God we're in a public health emergency kind of meant you know. Uh, consideration of these issues to more of like a okay maybe we're kind of past the worst of this and we should be kind of getting back to uh, I don't know if you want to say normal traditional you know whatever you however you want to characterize it you know way of developing and and coming up with having evidence before we start recommending things um that's a uh, that's a comp I, that question does not have a simple answer um <laughs> i don't think there was as much i don't think there was like a ton of sentiment at the meeting that you know we're out of the pandemic in the way that quote might make some people feel like right i mean i think um there's still something around 500 people right die day in the u.s i mean that's extremely um high when you look at other causes of death when you look at like how many people might die in a typical flu season i think the u.s even is very worried about what might happen this fall and winter if you know flu collides with even this level of covid death which is you know it's still high but it's not as bad as we've been and if it does go up, I mean, I think they're incredibly worried about what it could happen to the health systems again. So, you know, I think different people have different opinions about how much of an emergency we're in right now. But I, I don't think there was a there was like a huge sentiment that like we need more data because of something shifting in the pandemic necessarily. Um, but I do think there were other comments you know, and signals at ACIP that like they are thinking about right moving to a time or a place where COVID vaccines are treated a little bit more like kind of a, I don't know, normal bit business as usual type. I'm not sure what the right word is, because again, I think, you know, if you really look at the data and case numbers and amount of disease in the U.S., we do not want to end up as this is our endemic levels, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, they were talking about, you know, I think they seemed optimistic. They weren't going to be having all of these like emergency COVID meetings and this many ACIP meetings. Um, the number of ACIP meetings they've had been having going forward. So there was like a little bit of this feeling of like, maybe this is like the last of like all of this craziness we've had, um, you know, and one thing I think Moderna mentioned at the meeting that they're going to be filing for a full BLA for this booster. And I think the dynamics between ACIP and FDA shift a little bit when there's a full approval um, versus an EUA in terms of how often and how ACIP weighs in. So that's also part of the dynamic, not so much like the state of the pandemic, but just like the state of the regulatory, um, 
you know, standards and how that impacts what ACIP does and so forth. Um, that's something I might look into a little bit more. But so, yes, I think they're like hopeful. And, you know, I think Matt mentioned earlier, there's sort of this hope too, like maybe can we get on a one booster per year schedule? Again, I think a lot of that is going to depend on what happens with variants and case levels and so forth moving forward. Might that be ideal and nice? Yes. But again, we know that people seem to be really need a booster like it probably every six months right now with these vaccines if you want to kind of maintain protection. Um, and certainly if we get got any new variants, I think there might be pushes for, um, you know, another round of boosters sooner rather than annually. COVID doesn't have that same seasonality, you know, as, as we've seen with flu. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate why, you know, folks like Peter Marks and stuff are hopeful we can kind of, you know, do your flu COVID annual fall thing instead of just your flu shot. Um, but I think um, COVID kind of continues to surprise us. And every time people think, you know, oh, we're, we're kind of done with the worst, something else happens. So I think kind of, I think it's probably be premature to say like, we're in a totally new place right now in terms of how we deal with boosting and ACIP and FDA reviews of these vaccines. Yeah, it's also why they're, <clears throat> they're really pushing for, um you know, that the next generation, whatever you quote unquote, the next generation of COVID vaccines, there's, there's, um, you know, there, there's people out there looking at nasal sprays because they've, the, the research suggests that um, if you can, you know, if you can, if you can prevent, if you can generate mucosal immunity, then you can prevent infection and spreading of the virus and not just severe disease and hospitalization, which is what the the current shots are doing. So, you know, like you said, we the, and we've and federal officials have said this over and over. We can't just keep giving boosters over and over again and hope this goes away. It's just not physically possible. So, yeah, I think we're we're eventually going to have to move on to the hopefully, you know, hope the next generation vaccine gets gets taken care of or or get comes out or you know, something else changes that we can, the science improves that we can, uh, you know, do something else as opposed to just hope that it's, there's an annual or a semi-annual, uh, you know, shot that we all, you know, probably a, a smaller and smaller percentage of us will be getting year after year. Right. I mean, we know sort of know that a lot of people don't get their flu shot in the U.S. and, you know, ACIP also had some modeling kind of trying to show like what would be the impact of these vaccines. And they, they, they showed sort of the deaths and hospitalizations and things prevented if, you know, you assume like kind of average flu vaccine uptake. And mm -hmm. then they showed it if you assumed 80% uptake, which is higher than flu vaccine uptake. So, you you know, you get a sense of um, perhaps too their um, expectations, even, you know, the administration has 170 million of these boosters that will eventually be making their way to the U.S., there are, I believe it was 209 million was the number ASIP had for the number of Americans 12 and older. So, okay, maybe the, that number is pretty closely aligned if, you know, we're not assuming 100%. But, you know, once you add in kids under 
12 because there's some expectation there's an expansion there and some of these vaccine doses may be actually the under 12 doses. You know, you're talking, they're, they're thinking maybe only half the U.S. population might really want these shots. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But there, I think there's already in our ordering of the shots baked in some amount of low uptake expectations. Although some of it, again, could be how much money the administration had also to buy this stuff. So it's hard to totally say that. But yeah, I mean, I think like the Biden administration would love to have like a really high successful booster campaign turnout. Um, but it, it, somehow they would really have to convince the public that has kind of tuned this out to <laughs> change their behavior. Yeah, that's another interesting thing about this is that the transition to commercial, you know, kind of commercial um commercialization of COVID shots, you know, will, you know, will, how will that work with insurance? Will it be exactly the same as the flu shot? Will, you know, will all the pharmacies have it like, you know, and, and so forth? And, you know, will there be, you know, will the demand kind of keep up with, you know, will production be keep up? We'll assume there's a lower demand. So you won't, there won't be as much of it made and so forth. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, kind of going forward. And it, you know, it it does seem it it doesn't seem like that long ago we were actually talking about vaccines being authorized and who would get them first. So the, the fact that we're you know talking about potentially the end of government support for this and moving to a new phase and you know we've we've come a long way in I guess a little, what are we a little over two years now. So yeah, I mean it, it's it's interesting. I mean one thing that I think sometimes sort of disappoints me is I think we got those original vaccine authorizations probably a bit faster than a lot of people who follow, you know, vaccine development were, were expecting. And then also, I think the vaccines initially, the efficacy was a lot higher than people were expecting. And I, it, it is, I think it, there is, um, you know, unfortunately that like initial high got sort of um, blown apart a little bit faster than I think people wanted, given, you know, development of new variants and, you know, how um, quickly the um, efficacy of the, these vaccines have waned. I think maybe, you know, in an ideal world, we would have all gotten our those two shots and never had to think about COVID again. And, you know, that's just not what we're dealing with here. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Steven Soderbergh, uh, um, you know, uh, um, contagion, uh, movie ends with a, uh, a, a basically a one person challenge trial of the vaccine and then through kind of a uh, a, a slow uh, uh, rollout to uh, you know first responders first and then uh, you know it's all it's all over there's no sort of kind of uh, contagion the uh, sort of kind of contagion to the uh, the wearying uh, um, you know annual uh, annual booster uh, argument uh, so that's what we're yeah. in now so yeah. i will definitely not be watching that movie i have no <laughs> desire to watch contagion never mind a sequel that's even darker yeah there you go <laughs> next up is the opioid crisis the fda this week released another plan for fighting the epidemic called the overdose prevention framework among the items in the plan is exploring whether the agency agency should seek new authority for opioid approval standards, including the ability to require that new opioids show a material safety advantage over existing products. FDA officials also plan new guidance on development of non-addictive treatments for chronic pain and will continue to review opioid labels to determine whether changes are necessary. 
FDA Commissioner Robert Califf said in a blog post about the plan that mandatory prescriber education remains on the table, including a unified national level education program to make it more effective than the current program. A number of items in the framework have been in previous opioid plans, including like packaging changes and evidence-based opioid prescribing guidelines and fighting opioid diversion. This is the third FDA opioid plan since Califf's first term as commissioner began in 2016. So do you all think this one is going to make the dent in the crisis that they're hoping for? As we were just saying this, we're kind of the, uh, you know, the the third booster is probably not going to uh, change the trajectory of the uh, um, the COVID uh, um, uh, COVID pandemic, and I don't think the third, uh, um, you know, opioid action plan is going to change the um, the uh, the opioid crisis that much uh, that much either. I mean, you know, the the policy ideas that they're they're weighing are all interesting, and you know, sort of put together could uh, could make a difference. But uh, um, you know, it's uh, um, I think unfortunately that's that the, the uh, that's an issue that's here to stay uh, for us, given especially sort of how the uh, the illicit trade is uh, um, fueling it at this point. Uh, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty shocked when I read that in your story. Like, I, I, I remember, you know, Gottlieb doing an opioid plan. I certainly remember, but I didn't quite appreciate just how many opioid <laughs> plans like this have been issued in the previous year and then just previous years and then thinking about, well, how much has really come from that? I mean, I think Caleb really, you know, with that being highlighted, Caleb really has pressure on him to actually do something meaningful. Um, you know, I think eventually people get fed up with, you know, governments issuing plans or doing studies, you know, or things like that, that that, that don't ever impact people's lives and take a lot of time and years. And um, I think that there's maybe a signal here that they need to figure out a way to go beyond just doing issuing plans and actually figure out what action would be helpful and just taking it and doing it. Otherwise, we're just going to be here in the, you know, another six years with more plans and no change. Yeah, I think one of the big problems they have is that there is still this issue, you know, this, there's still people with chronic pain who need treatments for chronic pain. And right now, unfortunately, opioids are one, you know, are, you know, for a lot of people, I'm sure the one of the few options that they have to be able to live their lives, you know, at least some semi pain free. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking that the answer probably still lies in the drug development space. I mean, they, they, they're trying, you know, one of the things is to develop guidance on, non-addictive pain treatments and we just don't have a lot of those that are able to be you know that have really taken off and may, i mean i'm thinking that that's probably the the answer to kind of you know wean people off opioids is going to be to give them an alternative that is just as good yeah and unfortunately i'm not um sure just how common this or kind of the um, overprescribing that leads to addiction uh, pattern is anymore. Um, you know, I'm sure it's still happening, but I feel like the, you know, the, the simply the uh, illicit opioid market is probably as uh, um, as well established as for kind of the uh, um, the unintended, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, opioid market at this point uh, um, is. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, obviously we're clearing them out of uh, um, you know, people's medicine cabinets, since we're not getting more prescriptions, will uh, will make a dent, but uh, um, at this point, I think we're kind of focusing on uh, addiction treatment and figuring out sort of kind of the uh, the best way to uh, um, 
help those that are addicted, you know, be that, uh, you know, new medication uh, there or just for kind of better, uh, um, you know, uh, treatment plans and uh, access, which is a little bit out of uh, um, FDA's purview. Maybe actually they're the only way out of the um, the, uh, the opioid epidemic. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a difficult problem, and we've talked about it a lot of times on this on this podcast. I mean, you know, whether it's trying to make naloxone more available or trying to figure out, you know, should we just pull them all off the market and you know that kind of thing. It's 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 I don't know how you fix I you know I just, again I don't know how you fix the problem. <laughs> you know, one thing I would add though, like I agree with all the points you guys have made. You know, this is not an easy problem to fix and. Maybe I was being a little too harsh in saying they just keep making plans and there's no action. But there are some things in Caleb's plan <laughs> that have been talked about for a while that are very much in like FDA's wheelhouse that it, they don't doesn't seem like they move very fast in taking action on. So in terms of like thinking about, you know, how to whether, you know, modifying the standards for what a new opioid would need to show or, you know, are there any sort of packaging changes or, you know, differences in amount offered and those sort of things. I don't, so, or sorts of things. I just, I think there, there are some problems that are, you know, just very large outside of the scope of FDA interconnected and makes it hard for them, you know, to be kind of a lone actor. But then there are also kind of like these ongoing ideas that have percolated from various FDA commissioners and so forth that somehow seem to never come to fruition. Yeah, but the the flip side to that is, you know, on the on the develop on you know the opioid development side, I mean it's not like there's a million applications coming through the FDA for new new formulations of various opioids. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know the whole list, but there haven't been a whole lot approved in the last few years. You know, mainly because every time they approve one, there's this lump of criticism about why they're approving more opioids. So, you know, I don't. So you you have that issue, you know, connected to changing the you know the the standard for approval, and and the packaging issue has been is actually out there in along with like you know the mail the mail back envelope idea and and so forth, and it's running into you know questions from. Um, from industry about increasing costs and manufacturing mm. changes and you know all, all those kinds of things that the, you know so that a lot of this stuff gets bottled up or you know delayed you know um you know just through the the, bureau, the bureaucracy of it and trying to kind of get the you know industry you know on board to you know to to do some of the things that they want done mm-hmm. yeah i mean the, the opioid market's not for kind of a uh, um you know, white hot uh, growth area anymore, and obviously all these uh, big expensive settlements that uh, um, sponsor has uh, have to make, uh, um, you know, because of the uh, the liability issues uh, surrounding what's happened is probably sort of discouraging people from uh, um, from entering the the field. But uh, um, you know, hopefully we can get some of that uh, um, you know drug development attention into the um, into addiction uh, treatment and uh, um, other other related areas that might uh, might actually make a dent. Yeah, I think that's what people are hoping for, like, um, you know, doing things like, you know, in like, you know, OTC naloxone or just be, you know, improving naloxone distribution, setting up, you know, expanding buprenorphine, uh, you know, programs and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's it it's it's not going to get any easier going forward, even with even with the, you know, no matter how many plans they put out. Finally, we're going to take 
take a look at the FDA's policy and regulatory agenda going forward. Now that the summary is unofficially over, the agency will see many high priority items return to the stage. Congress will be dealing with two huge pieces of legislation, the appropriations bill for the federal government, as well as the user fee reauthorization. Both are going to expire on October 1st, absent any congressional action. Amelix also will have its second advisory committee meeting on the ALS drug AMX0035, with a decision expected by the end of the month. There's also the McKenna Accelerated Approval Withdrawal Hearing coming up, I believe in October, just to name a few of the items, uh, issues still kind of pending. Um, I think when I tweeted about this story about the upcoming September issues, I asked if there's ever not a pivotal month for the FDA, because it seems like there's always an important market moving decision, seemingly, you know, days or weeks away. But I'm wondering if any of these are, or if there's something else kind of on the radar that you're looking at, you know, for the FDA's, we're going to call it a September to remember, or, a, you know, something coming up later this fall. Well, I think certainly, you know, the um, the the user fee renewal is uh, going to set the tone for what uh, um, the agency can do over the next half decade. So that's, uh, um, you know, a critical issue that, uh, that's, uh, you know, may or may not be resolved by the end of the month. There may be sort of some uh, continuing user fee collection uh, resolution, uh, um, you know, in the works that could sort of kind of, uh, you know, kick the can down the road on that. But uh, um, that's certainly uh, um, not something that happens every month. So that's a... Uh, um, that's a big deal, and then obviously sort of kind of how it uh, you know changes the allocation, sort of kind of more um, you know funding for uh, gene therapy, you know sort of different uh, um, ways of interacting with the agency, uh, um, uh, you know which were kind of in the works for that uh, um, for that renewal, uh, you know the agency would like to get started on. So uh, and if it can't, uh, um, you know that would be a problem for it. Yeah, that's the thing with the user fee bill or user fee agreement is that it has all sorts of goals in it that a lot of them are, um, you know, tied to the first year or two. So in things, especially like hiring goals, you know, they're, they're, you know hundreds of people are supposed to be added to the agency's uh, employment roles because of this agreement. And, you know, the, I know a lot of the, a lot of times the recruitment starts ahead of the agreement being actually implemented because, they just need that much more time to find the find the you know uh, the candidates for the jobs. But you know, if you don't know when you know when when you, when that agreement is actually going to kick in, it makes it it's got to make it a lot harder to hire people, uh, especially when you don't know if the money is going to come in or if it's going to come in at the level you're expecting it to come in. So yeah, that's 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 a big thing for me. It's kind of the impact of a of a continuing resolution, which would allow them to collect at old levels for a, a couple extra months. Um, you know. Certainly, is it? Yeah, that's that would, that a big would deal. help them uh, uh, avoid the worst case scenario of sort of massive layoffs or even just uh, um, furloughs. That's uh, um, you know would be uh, um, would be terrible compared to being able to kind of continue and sort of like this uh, um, you know uh, um, you know current Padufa um, status having to sort of kind of drop down and have to uh, um, you know not uh, not be able to retain all those employees would be uh, would be much worse than even having to sort of muddle. Uh, muddled through uh, as is. Yeah, certainly creating new programs is a lot harder if you're, if, if you don't know where the, if the money isn't coming in yet, uh, which is that, you know, they have new, there are new, there's a new, the biosimilar program is a new grant, uh, regulatory science grant program that's being created. It's already, they've already started um, soliciting for some of them based on um, carryover balance, but th that won't last forever. So, um, you know, it, it, it makes it a lot tougher to kind of do the things you want to do 
especially if they're, you know, you're trying to set them up from scratch. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.